Father, we come to you this morning to find rest. Rest from the burdens of the world. Rest from our sins. Rest from our anxieties. Father, to lay all of those things down before you. Your word tells us that we can cast our burdens upon you because you care for us. And so I pray, Father, that you would just allow us to do that in this very moment, just to let go of those things that may be weighing down our hearts, that may be distracting our minds, to leave them before your throne so that we can hear you this morning. May you be glorified in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we were given stark warnings about not hardening our hearts toward God, but being willing to hear his voice and to encourage one another to do the same. In verse 11, we were warned specifically that those who fail to do so, who fail to hear his voice and instead harden their hearts, will not enter God's rest. Now, we left it there, right? I made that comment and we left it there because of what we're going to talk about today, because now we're going to move forward with the theme of God's rest as we finish chapter 3 and move into chapter 4. And this is a wonderful spot for us to remember and understand that the chapters and verses are not inspired. The chapters and verses didn't come about till roughly, if I remember correctly, it was somewhere in the 1600s. When this was written, a lot earlier than that. Now it's nice, because I can say John 3.16 and everybody knows. Well, you should. You don't know where John 3.16 is. That's your homework this week. But back in the old days, right, up until the 1600s, it would be something to the effect, oh, the passage in John's gospel with Nicodemus. There were no chapters. It was just one document. So the fact that we're starting in chapter 3, verse 16, and moving into chapter 4, it's just a, a wonderful, lovely reminder that the chapters and verses are not inspired. And that's important for us to understand because if we take them as such, we take them as inspired, we will lose context. If we think chapter 4 stands separate from chapter 3, we will lose context. And that will affect our ability to properly interpret the scripture. So it's good for us to understand that, that the chapters and verses aren't inspired. They're helpful. I'm grateful for them. But don't give them too much credence because the, the people who put the chapters and verses in were really wrong in a few places. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16. For who, having heard, rebelled? Right? So the previous verse, verse 15, says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So then, for who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom... Did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. So this is a really good tie between what we studied earlier in chapter 3 and what we're going to move into in chapter 4. 
So to end chapter 3, Paul asks and answers three questions concerning rebellion and rest. Question number one, who having heard rebelled? Well, wasn't it all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And yeah, go back and read the book of Exodus. You will see over and over and over again, right? They leave Egypt. First trial, they get to the Red Sea. Oh, did God just bring us out here to die because there weren't enough graves in Egypt? Right? They had, it had been a couple days. And then God does a miracle. They get to the other side. They're on their way. They get thirsty. Oh, did God bring us out here so we could die of thirst? Moses strikes the rock and brings out water. They get to Mount Sinai. Moses is up there getting the Ten Commandments. Well, we don't know what happened to Moses. We don't know what happened to God, even though there was a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by night. He was right there. But we don't, we don't know what's going on. Uh, let's make an idol and worship that. Right? Over and over and over and over again. Who rebelled? Those that Moses led out of Egypt. They rebelled repeatedly. Who was he angry with for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And again, yes, those, that's the people he was angry with. Specifically, those who refused to enter the land the first time out of fear and unbelief. And that's all recorded for us in Numbers 14. Moses leads them, they get the law, they build the tabernacle, they move on to the border of the land. Moses sends in 12 spies, one from each tribe. Ten of them come back. Oh, the land is filled with giants and fortified cities. We can't do anything about this. And the other two are like, oh, we can take them. Right? God is with us. We can deal with, it doesn't matter. Who cares if there's giants? Who cares if there's walled cities? God is on their side. Joshua and Caleb were those two witnesses, or those two spies. But the rest convinced the other three million people, give or take, not to go into the land, and they rebelled. And God said, fine, you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years, and everybody who refused to go in is going to die? Your kids will get the land. You don't get to see it, except for Joshua and Caleb because they were faithful. And Joshua ends up leading the people into the land under the guidance of, of God's grace and power. And Caleb being, uh, what was it, 80-something, 80, 80 84, 88? I can't remember. That's in the book of um, Joshua. He gets into the land, and he goes to Joshua, and he goes, remember, God said I could have that land. I want it. I'm going to go get it. Joshua said, it's yours. And in his 80s, he goes up. He fights the giants, wins, and takes the land. That's gold star worthy right there. Right? But the rest died in the wilderness. When you look at the, at the book of Numbers, and then you get to the book of Deuteronomy, or actually it's the end of the book of Numbers too, but end of the book of Deuteronomy, 600,000 plus died because they failed to enter the rest God was giving them. And to whom... The third question, to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? They died in the wilderness instead. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And the word for unbelief in Greek is interesting. Um, I don't often actually give you the word in Greek because very rarely can I pronounce them. Um, but I can pronounce this one. It's apistia, and it means faithlessness. It means disbelief or want or lack of faith or unfaithfulness 
and disobedience. So it, it's a complex word, as most words in Greek are. So it could say that they couldn't enter in because of their unbelief. But it also could say they didn't enter in because of their faithlessness. Or they didn't enter in because of their unfaithfulness. Or they didn't enter in because of their disobedience. All of those would be proper ways to translate that word. And we studied this at length when we studied the books of Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we are continuing to see this uh, as we go through the book of Judges, this rebellious spirit that is present in the people. They complain, they refuse to obey God, they refuse to obey his word, they refuse to follow the path laid out before them, and as a result, they were not allowed to enter in to the rest of God. We are being warned to not follow that same path, to not harden our hearts, but to enter his promised rest. And that's what we're now going to look at as we pick up in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it, for, in the deed, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For he, or sorry, for we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. I know there's a lot. So as we move into chapter 4, we firmly established those who would not enter God's rest. And those who would not enter God's rest are those who are disobedient. Disobedient to the gospel or disobedient to God. We're going to get into all of that here in a minute. So we're going to look at the promised rest that remains. What it means and who gets to enter it. But Paul begins with another warning. That we should fear the possibility that any of us could fail to enter that rest. We should fear that possibility. The word for fear here means frightened, in awe of, or in reverence of. So we should fear that possibility. We should be in awe of that possibility because some people don't think it's a possibility. And we should respect that possibility because it will make us much more intentional in our walk with Christ. You see, part of me that doesn't want to say this, but I'm going to anyway. 
We should not take this for granted. We shouldn't. There are many people who claim to be followers of Christ who will fail to enter the rest of God. They will fail. There's been times that I have. I know that. But I'm talking about the, the big F fail. The ultimate fail of entering God's rest. And I know that might sound ominous, but it's just honest. And we're going to see that as we move forward. So first, he talks about the word being received by faith. Right? Everybody who hears the gospel has the same opportunity to receive the truth of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. However, some people hear it, but they do not place their faith in Jesus, which means hearing it doesn't profit them at that moment. Think of the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, right? So the sower goes out and sows seed, and right, Jesus tells us that the seed is the word. Some of it falls by the wayside. The birds come and snatch it up. That's the wicked one snatching away the word because there was no understanding. I have shared the gospel with people, I imagine you have too, that they hear it and they're like, eh, eh. right? That's because Satan's at work. He doesn't want them to listen. Two, you have it sown on the stony place. There's, there's no depth, so it doesn't last under trial, right? This person, they hear the word, they're like, oh yeah, I need, I need that. Maybe they even come to church for a little while, but as soon as there's any difficulty, Oh, I'm done with it. I'm done with it. Right? And people get this idea, oh, Christians don't suffer. Go read the book of Job. Now, Job really wasn't technically a Christian. He was looking forward to the Messiah. And I think we're going to see him when we get there. But look at Job. He believed God. He was faithful. He was a man of integrity. And he suffered greatly. Right? And anybody who says Christians don't suffer have never read the Bible at all. Jesus suffered. Now, Jesus isn't really a Christian because he can't place his faith in himself. That's a different story. But Jesus suffered, and the servant is not greater than their master. But this happens a lot. A person hears the gospel. They're excited about it. First time something goes wrong, oh, God must not love me. No. God loves you. That's why you're going to get through it. Third, the seed gets sown but it grows up and gets choked out by the thorns. So a person hears, they believe, but the things of the world distract them, the cares of the world. And it leads them to being unfruitful in their lives. And I've always found that interesting. That's why I said we, we can't take for granted. Because the first three people in the parable of the sower each heard the gospel. Two of them showed some sort of response to the gospel, but either a trial or the cares of the world and the distractions kept them from ever being fruitful. That, in my mind, as we look at the rest of Scripture, means that they didn't really get saved. The fourth, the word falls on good ground. What is good ground? It's a soft heart. We're being warned not to harden our heart. Good ground is a soft heart. We hear the word, we understand it, and it bears fruit in our lives. In other words, what happens inside of us comes out. 
bears fruit in our life. Right? How do you know an apple tree is an apple tree? Well, because in the right season, there's apples on it. It's the same for us. How do people know we're a Christian? Because the fruit of our relationship with Christ is going to come out of our life. I want you to understand, it's been suggested that because of the parable of the sower, 75% of the people who hear the gospel will not get saved. Suggestion. 25% of the people who hear the gospel will. Imagine that. That's why we're being warned not to harden the heart. So I don't want you to be discouraged if you share the gospel with somebody and they don't get saved. The fact of the matter is, it is more likely that they won't get saved than they will. I know throughout my life and my ministry, and I'm sure it's true for you as well, you have shared the love and truth of Christ with a number of people. And if I actually sat down and thought about it, I could probably count the number of people who have gotten saved. And it's because it's not that big of a number. I also know I'm not an evangelist, and that's okay. Because some people are evangelists, and they just go look at somebody and say, you need Jesus, and that person falls on their knees in repentance because that's the way the Holy Spirit works through them. It's not the way he works through me, and i got to be okay with that. Because many are going to hear and not place their faith in Christ. However, maybe we sowed a seed. right? Maybe we planted that first seed. Or maybe there was already a seed there, and all we did was water it, but ultimately, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, we may plant, we may water, but it's God who brings the increase. So don't be discouraged when you share the gospel with somebody and they don't get saved immediately. Or maybe they don't get saved at all. Or maybe you have people in your life like I do who you've been sharing the gospel with for decades. And they haven't gotten saved yet. But yet is the operative word. You keep praying for them. Keep sharing as you have opportunity, and you let God do what he does best, which is save people like us. So then he talks about, uh, sorry, I should turn the page that I was on. Nothing but professional here, guys. He then talks about that these works were finished from the foundation of the world, because he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. That God rested on the seventh day from his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Uh, and so I, I find this really fascinating. Because these works were finished, which means caused to be or brought into being from the foundation or conception of the world. All of God's works, including our salvation, were finished from his perspective before he ever said, let there be. Right? Right? Before in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, before he said, let there be light, and there was light, before any of that ever happened, from God's perspective, all of this is already done. My salvation, your salvation, the existence of new song, the, the purpose that God has for you in your life, all of it was already done before he ever created anything. Now that's a little mind-boggling to us. Because he exists out time, outside of time and space. Right? We're going to camp. We're going to leave at 2 o'clock this afternoon. Church started at 10-ish. 
we have in our minds, we cannot comprehend existing outside of the chronological flow of time. We just, that doesn't exist for us. But you see Genesis 1-1 and Revelation 22-21, well, they're all one, one place for God. There's not thousands and thousands of years of time difference for him. For us, we know Genesis 1-1 was, eh, give or take 4,000 years ago. We don't know when Revelation 22-21 will be, but we know it's coming. But at the very least, there's a huge chunk of time between them from our perspective, but not from his. But that means before he created, Jesus was already crucified and risen from the grave. That means before Abraham was born, the nation of Israel being in the land today was already within God's plan and purpose, right? All of those things don't, they don't mesh in my mind because I don't exist outside of time and space, right? I get my little plot on the timeline. So far, I've gotten 45 years. Um, maybe I'll get more. Maybe I won't. Who knows? Maybe that bear is going to show up at camp and I'm going to go out like a man. With my, I'm not allowed to take my axe to camp, thank you. My wife said no. You know, I'm a 45-year-old man. Do I have to get my wife's permission to do things? If I'm wise, I will always get my wife's permission to do things. But yes, my kids bought me a walking axe, a walking battle axe from Lord of the Rings for Father's Day. It's hanging on the wall in my office, but my wife said I couldn't take it to camp. So I'll listen. But all of this is in, in one thing for God. We know that Revelation 13, 8 says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This is why this is so fascinating to me, though. Before God created Adam, before he took a rib out of Adam's side and made Eve, before he gave them the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with a bunch of other sinners, he knew what would happen. He knew human beings would sin. He knew we would rebel. He knew we would snub our noses at him, want nothing to do with him, refuse to listen to him. He knew. He knew that in order to save us, he would have to send his son die a horrible death taking our sin taking our place he knew he did it anyway because he loves us boggles my mind boggles my mind but he did it He goes on in verses 6 and 7. He said, therefore, it remains that some must enter it. And those to whom it was first preached didn't enter in because of disobedience. And so again, he designates a certain day saying, and David, today, after such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not 
harden your hearts. So someone has to enter this rest. God created a rest for human beings to enter into. Offered that rest at first to the nation of Israel, and we get the history of that in the Old Testament, that they refused. They refused to enter that rest. God knew that would happen, and he knew who he would offer it to in their place. Us, the Gentile church. And don't get me wrong, Jewish people can get saved. They can come to believe in Jesus and spend eternity in the presence of God along with us, and it'll be awesome. We talked a lot about that, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Feel free to go back and, and reread that or re-listen to those messages. But when the nation of Israel as a whole refused to enter in, he said, fine, I'm going to offer it to somebody else. Because somebody has to enter that rest. Ultimately, that rest comes through Jesus Christ. And so he offered it to us. But what kept them from going in? Well, it was disobedience. We've talked about this before. Because of their disobedience, they couldn't enter in. And for our purposes today, this begins with obedience to the gospel. Right? We obey the gospel. That's how we get saved. What does the gospel tell us? To believe in Jesus Christ. Right? If you refuse to believe in Jesus Christ, that's disobedience to the gospel. When you believe in Jesus Christ, that's obedience to the gospel. So that's the first disobedience that keeps people from entering in. But also, for those who claim to be followers of Christ and do not follow his ways. For those who claim to be believers in Jesus Christ, but they do not live in obedience to the word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 7, 24 through 27, Jesus told us this. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, it's not enough just to hear it. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now, I'm not telling you this because I think any of you fall into this category. But at the same time, I don't know your heart. I can't see what's inside your mind. I can see fruit in your life, but I don't know. Not for sure. I mean, if you ask me, am I going to heaven? Yeah, because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And even though I do it with many mistakes and many flaws, I try by the power of his Holy Spirit to follow what he tells us in this book. I don't do it. <laughs> Be assured. I don't do it on purpose. Yeah, try is the operative word. Because even empowered by the Holy Spirit and with the clear teaching of Scripture, I make mistakes. I make a lot of mistakes. I make some really big mistakes. I make some really small mistakes. The other day, everyone's had to hear about it, so you get to as well. Just by way of demonstration, you all know I'm writing my dissertation. Now I'm not going to go. My daughter's already shaking her head. You stop it. They came to church. Now they have to listen. 
I'm having an issue with one of my committee members. Right? I'm not going to get into all of it because it'll make it way too long. But the other day, my wife can bear witness, Hannah was home. I was yelling like at the top of my own. Not at my wife, not at my daughter, not at the dog. I was just yelling because I was so mad. Now, when I got done, I calmed down. My chair stepped in and said, I'm going to deal with it. Okay. And my wife read the emails before I sent them to this member of my committee to make sure I didn't say anything or uh, that was, you know, particularly rude or wrong. She made me take stuff out. I wanted to say stuff that was rude. <laughs> right? So my wife stepped in as a picture of the Holy Spirit going, you can't say that. <laughs> that he, he's not going to take that well. Yeah, you're probably right. But when I was done, I'm like, is, is that really how I should have responded? Of course not. I was wrong. Right? You guys know I'm far from perfect. But I want to try. There are some people that don't even want to try. I'm a Christian. There's this dude. Oh, hey, Bob. It's a good thing you guys don't see me all the time, right? You get this pretty picture on Sunday mornings. Well, it's as pretty as it can be uh, of what I am. Um, but I, I saw this thing the other day where there were some, and I don't know what denomination he was from, and it's probably good, uh, but this guy who was supposedly a pastor uh, went online and started telling people how, uh, you know, sex outside of marriage isn't wrong, sex with members of the same sex isn't wrong, the sex with minors isn't wrong. He went through all, and I'm like, dude, dude. Right, if he said that to me in person, I might have hit him. Because that was just, just so far off. Now, thankfully, the reason I saw it is because uh, uh, some other internet person who is biblically solid was refuting his video, which I was very grateful for. But I, I was just like, how, how? You claim to be a follower of Christ, and then you completely ignore everything he said. You can't do that. It's not about being perfect. We're not going to be perfect. We're going to blow it. But when we read this, it should convict us. It should instruct us. It should guide us. The Bible is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. If we're not in the word, how do we even see? We're blind in the dark. The Holy Spirit gives us power and ability to follow what the word of God says. But if we ignore that power and we ignore what the word says, then I have to ask a fundamental question. Are you really a follower of Christ? Am I really a follower of Christ? Why do we need to reflect on this? Why is this important for us to understand? Well, it goes back to what I said at the beginning. That we have to be frightened in awe of and in reverence of the possibility that any of us could fail to enter that rest. And what I do not ever want to happen is that I stand before God and he say, you know, this person didn't get saved or this person didn't understand because you failed to explain it. I don't want that. If anybody listening to this message now or at any time in the future says, well, I didn't understand how I got saved or I didn't understand what I was supposed to do with a Christian. 
Well, it's because you didn't listen to me. Really, it's because you didn't listen to what the word says. It's not me. I'm just telling you what God already told us. You want to know what? I'm responsible for following it just like you are. I have a little more responsibility because God wants me to tell you what it says. That's why James 3.1, you guys all, I, that verse scares me. Let not many of you become teachers. You'll receive a stricter judgment. So pray for me. Pray for me that I get this right. Because if I get it right, and I can share it with you, then that'll help you get it right. Just like there's people who have come before me who have gotten it right and shared it with me. Joshua, it says in the next verse, if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Right? So if Joshua had actually given them rest, then there wouldn't have been a need to speak of another rest. But Joshua couldn't give them rest. When we studied the book of Joshua, we talked about how Joshua is a picture of Jesus leading the people into the promised place of rest. Even Joshua's name, Jehovah is salvation. Right? We call Jesus, Jesus. But his name in Hebrew was actually Joshua. The reason we call him Jesus is because in Hebrew it's uh, Jehovah-shua or Yehoshua. In English that becomes Joshua. But in Greek, Joshua is Iesus. So because we get our New Testament from Greek manuscripts, we call him Jesus. But his name was really Joshua, in case you didn't know that. And so Joshua is a picture of that, but what Joshua couldn't do it. Joshua fell short. The people never possessed all of the land. We talked about that in Joshua, and now we're seeing the consequences of it as we study the book of Judges. I'm telling you, if you're not here on Wednesdays, you're missing something. Throwing that out there. You can do what you want with it. At least listen to it online. We're, we're having a lot of fun. At least I am. I hope everybody else is too. But Joshua couldn't do that. Jesus can. Right? What the law couldn't do, Jesus can do. We're going to get into that more later in Hebrews. What Joshua couldn't do in bringing the people into the land, Jesus can do for us. Because it goes on that there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. And what is that rest? He who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. We enter God's rest. This is the ultimate answer to this whole passage. We enter God's rest when we cease from our works the same way God did from his. Now, don't take this wrong. James 2 still tells us that we demonstrate our faith by our works. Matthew 7 just told us that we have to hear the word of God and do it. Well, I've entered God's rest, so I don't have to do anything. That's not what this means. What this means is we cease from our own attempts to earn our salvation or God's favor. Right? I want you to write it down or commit it to memory or tattoo it on your arm or I'll go with you. I don't have that tattooed anywhere and I got space. Entering God's rest means that we cease 
trying to earn our salvation or God's favor by our own efforts or works. It doesn't mean we don't work for the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean we don't put effort into our relationship with Christ. It means that I don't go, you know, I did really good today, so God must love me a little more than he did yesterday. Or I did pretty bad today. Maybe God doesn't love me so much right now. Or, you know, maybe God's not answering my prayer because I've messed up, so he's not listening to me. Or maybe, you know what, I, I just, I've got to go to church every week, and I've got to read my Bible every day, and I've got to give the right amount of money. Then I'll get into heaven. No, you won't. If you're relying on church attendance to get into heaven, you're in trouble. So am I. If you're relying on the amount of money you put in the plate when it goes by to get into heaven, keep your money. That's not how you get in. If you're relying on anything but the finished work of Christ on the cross, if you're relying on anything but his death and resurrection, you're relying on something false. And that's how we enter his rest. When I make a mistake, I repent of it. But you know what? I don't go to God and go, man, I, I know I'm not getting in now. I go to God and I say, thank you that even though I am a giant mess, you still love me and my salvation comes from what Jesus has done, not me. You want to know something else? When I do good. Right? I'm hoping to have a great week at camp. When I get home next weekend, I'm not going to think, oh, God loves me more than everybody who didn't go. I'm not going to think that. At least I shouldn't. Right? Because this week, what I'm doing right now, this is not about earning God's favor. It's not about making him love me more than he loves you. That's not what it's about. Ceasing from our works. It's about understanding that we cannot earn our salvation. We cannot earn God's favor. He gives it to us out of his love and grace. We have to respond. It's not automatic, but it's nothing we earn. And that's how we enter his rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30 says it so beautifully. Well, Jesus says it in that passage so beautifully. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Learn from him. Learn to follow his ways. And part of that is I can't save myself. There's nothing I can do that will ever be good enough. So I don't work for my salvation. I work because of my salvation. But I don't work for my salvation. I simply rest in what Jesus has already done. So I want to take a moment to talk about the believer and the Sabbath. Because this issue of rest tends to bring up questions about the believer, the 
follower of Christ and our relationship to the Sabbath day. So, the Sabbath day was a day that Israel was commanded to set aside for rest and worship. We see this in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. However, in the Gospels, of the Ten Commandments, Jesus reiterated nine of them. The one commandment that he did not reiterate in the Gospels is the keeping of the Sabbath day. Because he is Lord of the Sabbath. Matthew 12, 8, Luke 6, 5 tells us that. And because, as we just read, he is our rest. The Jews felt like they had to keep the Sabbath in order to be right with God. So from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, they did nothing. And they thought that made them right with God. It doesn't make us right with God. Jesus makes us right with God. That's why we find our rest in him. So then I have to answer this ask and answer this question, I hope. Do we, as followers of Christ, need to keep a Sabbath day? And the answer is no. And yes. Let me explain. No, we do not have to keep any portion of the law in order to be saved. This is what it means to enter his rest and to cease from our works. If we think we need to keep a Sabbath day in order to go to heaven, we're in trouble. We also have to remember that it was a very agrarian society. They would work from sunup till sundown six days a week. The whole point of the Sabbath was actually to learn to trust God. That your fields, your crops, your livestock would be okay if you took a day off. It was meant to teach them to trust him. That's why they had a Sabbath year. Every seventh year, they weren't supposed to do anything and just trust God to provide for them. Oh, that's fun. But it's about trusting God. The Sabbath was always about trusting God, not just about the day. And so if we've ceased from our works, if we're trusting God for our salvation, we don't have to keep any part of the law. Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law on our behalf, so when we receive his death and resurrection, we are saved. We don't have to do anything to earn it or anything to keep it. Jesus has done it all. Colossians 2 13 through 15 explains this to us. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him. Having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, trying triumphing over them in it. Jesus took the law and he took care of it. So we don't have to keep the law in order to be saved. That, of course, speaks of the ceremonial law. We still keep the moral law. Not to be saved, but because we are saved. As followers of Christ, we shouldn't lie to people. We shouldn't murder people. We shouldn't commit adultery. We shouldn't covet things, right? We do that. We should still honor God. We should still honor his name in our lives. But we don't have to keep Sabbath. That was part of the ceremonial law. 
So, no, we don't have to keep the Sabbath. And yes, we do. Have I confused you? All right. How about instead of yes, we do, yes, we should. Although Jesus is our rest, and our salvation rests solely in him and his finished work on the cross, it is still wise to practice a Sabbath. Recently, I've been spending a lot of time telling you that I, I want to encourage you to practice a time of silence and solitude. Right? I've started with five minutes. Some days it's three. Some days it's seven. But you just take five minutes where you quiet and get rid of outside distractions, get rid of inside distractions, and just listen to God. Just rest in his presence. It's actually done wonders for me. I highly encourage you to do it. But we can also practice the Sabbath. We can take a day, and we can set it aside to rest and worship. Now that looks different. You want to know what's restful to me? Playing pickleball. So when I take a day off, you know what I want to do? I want to play pickleball. When I don't take a day off, I want to play pickleball. I just do. I'm not going to lie. We played pickleball yesterday. And on Thursday. And on Tuesday. And I would play pickleball today, but we're going to camp. But that's restful to me. Playing games with my family or watching a movie is restful to me. When I have a day where I, where I don't have to be in the office at a certain time or I don't have specific appointments, I spend a little more time in the Word, a little more time in prayer, not because I'm studying for a message, but just because I want to, just because I can. Right? It's good for us. It's good for our spiritual, emotional, and physical well-being to practice the Sabbath. But we don't have to, but we should. So as we close, this is the reality of what we talked about today. God offers a perfect rest to anyone who would come to him through Jesus Christ. In doing so, we cease trying to earn our salvation, and instead we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is the beauty of the gospel. It is not about what we can do, it is about what he has done. And all we have to do is receive this glorious gift by faith through grace, according to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And so there's two things I want you to consider as we close. Galatians 3, 2 through 3 says, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, or are you now being made perfect by the flesh? If we are still trying to earn our salvation, or if we are trying to make ourselves perfect in the flesh, we are not resting in Christ. I'm not saying this doesn't mean you're saved, but you're not walking with him the way he wants you to, if you're still trying to earn something. As I said last week, we begin, continue, and end in Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit. We start by faith in Christ that the Holy Spirit allows us to have. We continue by faith in Christ that the Holy Spirit allows us to have. We follow his ways as the Holy Spirit empowers us to understand his word and live it out. And one day we'll end. Maybe it'll be sudden. Maybe there'll be a trumpet sound. Maybe it'll be at a ripe old age. But one day we will all end. And I want to finish well. When I take my last breath, I know my next breath will be in his presence. And because of that, I don't care if my last breath is today or 30 years from now. or 50, 
I hope it's not 50 years from now. Uh, I've told you all, and I know that I've got a few folks in here that are in their 80s. I, I don't want to get, I, I think 80 is enough. Now, what I've been told by a very dear friend who's sitting there is you'll feel differently when you get there. <laughs> and maybe I will. Maybe when I get to 80, I'll be like, well, maybe 80 isn't enough. I don't know. But the point is, I don't care. If I live to be 120 or I die tomorrow, either way, I'm going home. But I want to, st I started by faith. I hope I'm continuing by faith, the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's how I want to end. And if at some point you're not doing that, are you really resting in Christ? Am I really resting in Christ? I told you I failed in it. I've had seasons where I was trying. Because I thought, if I just do the right thing, well, then God will do this for me. And I had to learn, that's not how our relationship works. He wants to do it for me. Yes, he wants me to be obedient, and there's consequences for disobedience, but he wants to bless me. He wants to work in my life. He wants to work in our church. Yeah, sometimes he's got to lay some groundwork. Sometimes he's got to fix some things. Sometimes he's got to get our thinking in the right direction, but he wants to bless us. We don't earn it. And then two, for anybody who might be listening whether it's the recording later or joining us online. I want you to listen to these words in Matthew 7, 21 through 22. They came right before the words we read earlier about hearing and doing his word. But it says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, Jesus is saying this on earth, what he's going to declare to them the day they stand before him, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So once again, I'm not saying you are not saved. That isn't up to me. That's between you and God. If you're unsure, please talk to me or someone else and let us help you be sure. However, what Jesus is saying here is that there are many people who think they are okay. They get involved. Maybe they go to church. Maybe they serve in a ministry. Or maybe they are in a small group. Or maybe they, they, they help people in the community. They think they're okay because they're doing things that make them look like they are okay. But they're not. And Jesus gives us two reasons why. One, they're not following the will of God. You can do a lot of really good stuff. But if you're not following the will of God, which begins with obedience to the gospel and resting in Christ for your salvation, all that good stuff isn't going to mean anything anymore. There are no scales that will balance out. Right? People have this terrible misconception that when I get there, hopefully I've done enough good to outweigh the bad. You can't. We can't do enough good to outweigh the bad. That's why Jesus died. Because he could. He did the good that outweighs our bad. And when we place our faith in him, we are cleansed and forgiven. And if anybody listening to this thinks there's some way that you can be good enough. 
you can't. Following the will of God begins with obedience to the gospel. And then someone might say, well, I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe that. I believe he rose from the grave. That means I'm going to heaven, right? Well, it should. But Jesus said in the end, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Because if you believe it, then you're going to have a personal and growing relationship with the Lord. And that's going to show up in your life. That's going to show up in the fruit of your life, in the way you treat people, in the way, right? We're at church. Why are we at church? Is it because we have to be here in order to go to heaven? No, it's because we want to gather together with people we love and love on Jesus together and let him love on us as a family. That's why we're here. At least that's why I'm here. I hope that's why you're here. Because this isn't about you. It's not about me. It's about him. It's about us celebrating him. It doesn't get us saved, but it helps us draw closer to him, helps us draw closer to one another so that we can pursue him together as the body of Christ. Like I said last week, I don't want this to be me, and I don't want this to be you. So in the words of what this scripture says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the glorious gift you've given us in Christ. Thank you that salvation is by faith through grace alone. There's nothing we can do to earn it. I pray if there's anybody hearing this who for some reason is unsure of their salvation or is relying on something else, Lord, that you would soften their hearts and let them respond to your gospel. For the rest of us, Father, help us to rest in Christ and his finished work to live our lives in obedience, not to earn your favor, but because we already have your favor. And by the power of your spirit, God, because we can't do it on our own. We love you. Pray you bless us as we continue in our week and bring you all the glory in Jesus' name.